Welcome to Tough Talk. Tough Talk was created to have challenging conversations across industries such as mining, oil and gas, renewables. We'll talk hydrogen, we'll talk hydropower, we'll talk offshore wind. You name it, nothing's off the table. Welcome to Tough Talk. This Tough Talk with Jody Rowe episode is brought to you by Powered. Powered helps service sector companies sell their products and services into the Australian energy industry. In the fast-paced world of Australian energy, the competition can be fierce. It can be a struggle to get your products and services the attention they deserve. That's where Powered steps in. With Powered on your team, you'll not only be able to amplify your sales, but also to accelerate growth in the Australian energy sector. Their expertise lies in creating and executing strategic sales plans that align perfectly with your unique business goals. So if you're ready to propel your business to new heights in the energy industry, there's no time like the present to reach out to Powered. Trust me, they are the game-changing boost that your business needs. So welcome to Tough Talk. Tough Talk today, we have our guest, Bettina Venner. And Bettina is the manager of supply chain development, sorry for the delay, at the Industry Capability Network, more commonly known as the ICM. So uh, Bettina's going to tell us a bit about her role and her background, but first we'll go through your background in great detail. No, it doesn't have to be in great detail. But really with the end game of trying to get to what does the hydrogen supply chain look like in South Australia, because South Australia is so progressive in that space. So Bettina, welcome. Thank you, Jodie. Thank tell you us, for having me on Tough Talk. Ah, you're welcome. So tell us a bit. A bit about my background. Yes. So I grew up the eldest of four girls in South Africa, German parents. So my parents live in Germany again, and two of my sisters live in Germany, and I have one oh. sister still in South Africa. Oh, wow. And my husband and I have moved to beautiful Australia, best place in the world. <laughs> of course. Um, <laughs> along with his sisters, their husbands, their kids, and his parents as well. So oh, wow. That's so, the background in a nutshell. They went back to Germany. My parents went back to Germany. I stayed, worked for about 10 years in South Africa in the oil and gas industry. So, I studied as a chemical engineer and also worked for a year in Germany at an okay. engineering design company. Well, there you go. And then you came to Australia with your husband mm-hmm. and his family. Well, his sisters were here already with their husbands and kids Mm. and his parents came after us and we already had our kids. So our kids are now in their 20s. Oh, and so they're all based in South Australia? Everyone in South Australia. It's great to have a family support network around. Why South Australia? Best place in the world. Okay, no. Why South Australia? (laughs) No, no. Like, yeah, was there a, good, a specific a reason? So was there a specific reason? So we had lived for a year in Germany and had look at, looked at Europe. We prefer the weather in yeah, Australia. Absolutely. And his sisters had decided to come here first. Mm-hmm. And the culture's much more similar to South Africa. The weather's similar to Cape Town. And I had a job when I arrived at the Mm. Mobile Adelaide Refinery, but the refinery closed soon after, but that then led on to other opportunities. Yeah. Mm. It's not a bad place to come, Mm. that's for sure. Okay. And and the year that we lived in Germany, even though my parents were living nearby, we learned the value of having a support network around you. Mm. So having his sisters here first really made that difference for us. And you've you've completely, how long have you been here now? 
20 years this year. And you're an Australian now. Definitely. Yes. All of us. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. So you've come to South Australia and tell us a bit about that career path that you took. So you went to the refinery. What what did you do? Yeah, so mobile refinery, I started out in one role, but a month later the refinery announced that they were closing. So I moved into the environmental management role, helping with mothballing of the refinery. Mm-hmm. So I was one of the last people that left oh, the refinery. Okay. But that led to having networks across the country. Mm. Um, and from there, I moved into the EPA, Environment Protection Authority, moved into some policy work and then later some environmental regulation work. From there, I took a leap of faith and took on a role at Department for Treasury and Finance, which I was lucky enough to see, apply for and be successful in. Uh, again, policy, regulatory policy in another field, in regulation of water, economic regulation of water and also gambling policy. Oh, wow. That's very different. Very di- I was trying to find the right words, but. Very different, very yeah. interesting. And the opportunity to take some legislation through Parliament. Obviously, the minister took the legislation through Parliament, but I was able to sit next to them mm. as they were taking that through Parliament. And from there, I moved into an economic development role, case management of major projects, helping companies navigate the red tape in government, mm-hmm. um, making it easier for that investment attraction to occur. And from there, I moved into energy industry supply chain role, helping companies understand the opportunities from more unlocking more oil and gas development. Yeah, uh, We were hoping the shale gas boom would take off yes. in South Australia, but it never quite well, There was an extensive plan that was issued. The roundtable for oil and gas yeah. projects, yeah, and, and looking at how to unlock that unconventional oil and gas and we had a couple of supplier study tours to the US as well to understand the opportunities, what the impacts had been there, the huge numbers in job growth, the um, huge opportunities for suppliers, the mm. supply chain to then supply to those sectors. So, um, but then the oil gas uh, went in the other direction. So, yeah. and that led on to a role at the Industry Capability Network, ICN. So, okay. I head up ICN in South Australia now and not only working in oil and gas also across mining, defence, infrastructure, renewables, construction. Yeah, quite a range of projects. A range. Mm. And what, what's the strongest industry that suppliers should target towards? Is it that emerging de- defence market? So define strongest. And our recommendation is usually make to be diversified. Yeah, okay. For most companies, it makes sense to diversify. For some companies, it makes sense to be niche, but also diversify the customer base. So we do have companies in South Australia that focus solely on defence, but they have a customer base worldwide. Yeah. Most companies supply to more than one sector. Mm -hmm. Defence is particularly strong at the moment. Mining is good. Uh, renewable sector is good, and um, what we're particularly excited about is the emerging hydrogen sector. Absolutely, we'll we'll, we'll get onto that. So it's fair fair journey from studying chemical engineering to doing what you're doing now, but in some respects can be quite relevant when it comes to the oil and gas space. Anyway, yeah, and I I believe that everything you've learned and you've worked on opens doors and sometimes doors close like the mobile refinery, but that leads on to 
other doors that are open. And sometimes life, life takes you in different directions and that's okay. Yeah. It's been a very interesting journey. Yeah, well, I, I mean, certainly has been. Do you get back over to Germany to see your family very often? My son and I were fortunate to go in 2019 mm-hmm. and his favourite is Borussia Dortmund, a football team, and we were fortunate to be part of the yellow wall, the fan oh, wall, wow. um, watching a game of Borussia Dortmund. So, yeah. yeah. That was in 2019, just before COVID. It's time to go again. Probably. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I know. I haven't been since 2019. Mm, mm. I'm going in August. I can't wait. Lovely. Yeah, mostly work. So a senior role at the ICN, the children are older now, so probably you're more full stream into work than what you have been before. So the, the balance between work and home, is there any... Look, I have easier? a very good support network. Yeah. Very supportive husband, very supportive kids. Um, everyone pulls their weight at home as well. And a supportive extended family network. I did work part-time when the kids were younger. So, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I, I had a conversation with someone the other day around diversity and some as when they some really aggressive targets, they said, the the targets are, are fine, but let's not forget people take maternity leave, people take all this leave, male or female, and roles don't get backfilled. So it's kind of... It's, roles should be backfilled. Yeah. So I've got somebody on maternity leave in my team at the moment and mm. I've backfilled that with another person and then I have another role which two people are sharing that role. Yeah. And it's working very well. I suppose... Your industry is probably a bit different than some. They're just not prepared to pay. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Okay, we we shouldn't. That's not an excuse not to do stuff, though. I will say, when I came to Australia, the maternity leave provisions were not as generous as they had been in South Africa. And in South Africa, every role, it, it was treated like long service leave and long service leave usually you should be able to backfill if people take leave for a year. Yeah. Was it paid leave then? In South Africa, yeah, it was well paid. Wow. So the one organisation I was in, it was two-thirds of my pay um, for six months and the other organisation I was in, it was 100% for four months. Yeah, right. It's pretty generous, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. So what attracted you to the ICN role? Because that's where you currently Mm. are now. Mm. So the ability to make a difference and help suppliers to connect to major projects, that's the core of what ICN does. And for me, we've chosen South Australia to live and work. I want to make South Australia an even better place to live and work. So Mm -hmm. that's what that role definitely gives me. So how do you, I mean, I've been on the ICN network. I've looked at the projects and all of that sort of stuff. and And it's an effective model. It works well. So how do you make sure you know, that everyone knows where to look? Because I'm just like some government bodies that you've just not got a clue where to start. What what's If people out there listening want to know, where do they go? First place, gateway.icn.org.au. Mm-hmm. Make sure if you've got a business with an Australian business number, make sure you've got a company profile registered on ICN. Basic profiles free of charge and we've got some paid subscription options for greater visibility. There's an office in every state and territory across Australia, so feel free to connect with your local office. We want to know what local suppliers can do, want a better understanding of your capability. A lot of the processes are automated. So companies 
fill in their business information themselves, a bit like LinkedIn for business, Mm -hmm. your opportunity to showcase what you can do. We'll find you behind the scenes. Buyers will find you in the online search if you've got one of those paid options. And the expression of interest stage of procurement, that's where we spend quite a bit of time. Supporting. Yeah. So come uh, big projects like BHP with Oak Dam Discovery or the Future Frigates or the Nuclear Powered Submarine Program, they list work packages on ICN Gateway for expressions of interest for, from local suppliers. And they okay. really and they really want to know what the local suppliers can do. It's not only is it part of their whole social license, it helps sovereign industrial capability. Um, it helps build that stronger manufacturing mm. base in Australia. And it saves time on transport costs and it de-risks supply chains as well. And, and is not every is every project on there or is it just certain projects? Yeah, so it tends to be the bigger end of town. Yeah, okay. So, um, for example, in construction infrastructure, the ones that we are working with at the moment are Women's and Children's Hospital and the Tones to Darlington um, upgrade of the North-South Corridor. Mm-hmm. But we are happy to work with smaller projects as well. So if there are any project owners or project developers that want to have a chat with us, feel free to contact me as well, either through LinkedIn or through ICN Gateway. My contact details are available as well. So this is just a left-field question. For all the activity that's going on in South Australia, and there seems to be a lot, mm-hmm. with all of that going on, are you, is, are you seeing people come in to the state? Is, is the numbers, you know, like, I mean, Queensland? So net migration so, in. So yeah. definitely we saw with COVID net migration into Australia. I haven't looked at the latest numbers, but in terms of employment, we have been at the highest levels of employment um, for a long time. For a long time, and then not just percent unemployment. When you look at that, it's total number of people employed as well. So we're just we're pinching them from other states and overseas. Yeah, and Australians are coming back. You know, during COVID, a lot yeah. of Australians came back home. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. I always look at the total employed people in Australia, and then. 30% are on minimum wage. There's re- it's not a lot of people for the landmass that we have mm. to do everything we need to do just for energy transition. And, and, th- and you can o- automate up to a point and then mm. you need people to be involved as well. Yeah. yeah. It's a numbers thing. The more people we have, the more that we can develop. But, mm. but the roles of the future are also changing. Yeah. Um, so even within ICN, the way we do our work has changed over time. In the olden days, it used to be company capability. Companies would send in the information yeah. on a fax machine and somebody would type it into a database. Yeah. Companies are doing all of that on their own. So, but that's good because then you have more time to actually spend with them, developing them, writing tenders, making sure that all of that information is 100% accurate rather than worrying about yeah. have, re- wasting resources on things that can't be automated. Yeah, and we don't yeah. we don't directly get involved in the tender process, yeah. so, um, but we'll have a side visit with a company, talk about their growth aspirations, connect them with other opportunities or connect them if they need someone that can help with writing tenders, we can mm. connect them that way as well. Do you see a lot of interstate companies moving 
to South Australia or are having more bases here? This morning I was talking to an interstate company. How are you? Yeah, yeah, that yeah. is spending more time in South Australia and planning to establish a base here. And yeah, there Low are cost quite center. a few. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's it's not, Australia's expensive, mm. full stop, but compared to other states. The cost of living yeah. here is less, definitely. Far less. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the lifestyle's great. Yeah, well, it is. I mean, Andrew Bills was on here just recently and he said 20 minutes, whichever way he goes, he comes to a winery. <laughs> well, and talking of wineries, my first job was actually at the oldest winery in South Africa. It was oh. a part-time, part-time, obviously, while I was a student. Mm. And so my husband and I both love winery, the wineries oh, and the choices here in Australia are amazing. In the perfect spot. Yeah. Was that Stollenbosch? Yeah. Stellenbosch is where I grew up. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. That's stunning. Yeah, yeah. Um, the oldest winery is in Cape Town, so it's called Fruit Constantia. Oh, see, I yeah. couldn't repeat that. That's <laughs> <laughs> a definite. So Napoleon game. Bonaparte loved the wine. Oh, really? Yes. It's fascinating. Oh, well, we could talk about South Africa, but we're not going mm. to. Okay, so. Uh, we've talked a bit about your role and how ICN supports local industry because that's really what it's about. So one of the things we're an energy podcast, let's talk about the hydrogen supply chain. So how important, well, let's go back to basics. What's the hydrogen supply chain? Or what's the hydrogen opportunity? If I go take a step it. even further back. You can correct me. You, no, no, no. Okay. No, go for it. <laughs> it's good. cool. Go for All it. good. So what's the hydrogen opportunity? Hydrogen can be generated in a few different ways. One of them is through biomass gasification and mm -hmm. then carbon capture and storage or from methane, from natural gas with carbon capture and storage or without carbon capture and storage, but that's not as good for the, uh, our greenhouse gas emissions or by splitting water through an electrolyzer. Or from gold hydrogen, mm -hmm. like one of your previous speakers spoke about. Lots of different ways to generate hydrogen. It's one of those molecules that can be generated to provide energy, and it can be generated in a net zero greenhouse gas way. Okay, right. So it helps get us to net zero. Electrification only gets you so far then you need hydrogen. So that's why we want to generate and use hydrogen in South Australia. Plus it becomes a way to export our renewable energy. Yes. So hydrogen supply chains. When ICN looks at supply chains, we look at the suppliers that feed everything that's needed to generate hydrogen for export or for transport fuel or for the gas network or for converting back to electricity. Mm -hmm. Everything that's needed is wind towers, wind turbines, solar panels, electrolyzers, and then all the downstream things. So plants that will convert the hydrogen to ammonia and getting it onto a ship or into the gas network or for use as transport fuel or to convert it back to electricity, for example, um, through a hydrogen fuel cell right. or through a gas turbine, for example. And so all the goods and services that feed into that, which includes professional services, solar panel manufacture, yeah, wind turbine manufacturer, civil works, fencing, everything. So we've been mapping everything that 
goes into that supply chain. That needs to support that mm. hydrogen industry. Yes. Okay. And just so I'm clear, right, so the the hydrogen through the gas network, what do you mean by that? I, so at the moment we use natural gas in our gas network. Mm-hmm. Some countries are moving to convert that to using hydrogen rather than natural gas. Okay. But there are changes required to get yeah. to that point and a decision hasn't been made in South Australia whether we go down that route or not because you could do biomass gasification, which is also a net zero option. If you do go down the hydrogen in, as a replacement for natural gas route, then you need hydrogen-ready gas appliances. Yes. You need your pipelines to be leak-proof. Yeah, so I was thinking of corrosion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there are different aspects to consider, different kind of materials that may be required. Some parts of the gas network are already hydrogen-ready. Others oh, will wow, need okay. some um, Maybe the newer ones. So polyethylene pipe, for example. Yeah, okay. Okay. It's it's an interesting subject because I think people throw the words around hydrogen but not knowing that all of these different forms. And then, you know, obviously Gresham with the natural hydrogen play and there's green with the ammonia that Incitec Pivot and FFI are doing. What are some examples of hydrogen projects in South Australia? So, for example, the Hydrogen Jobs Plan. Mm-hmm. which is planned in Wayala, a 250-megawatt mega, electrolyzer. And the plan with that one is to store renewable energy as hydrogen and then convert it back to electricity in the grid. So that's a way of firming up the grid. Okay. That's the intention. And how long does a project like that take? A long time. A long time. That one is planned to be operational by the end of 2025. So that one is government investment. Okay. So that one is being fast-tracked. Do you remember the big battery at Hornsdale? Uh, how could we forget it? Mm. So this is that type of project. So is it that enough batteries to warm a pizza? Is that right? Or am I just being tongue-in-cheek? You're being tongue-in-cheek, oh, okay. okay. That's a very big battery and that battery has been doing very well and helped us. Okay. I'll mm. stop bagging it then. I, d- I don't know nothing about it, so I'm just being difficult. Okay, it's no longer the biggest battery, but but South Australia still has the biggest electrolyzer. So the, when we talk supply chain, we're talking about what's required in South Australia to ensure that the hydrogen industry can grow. Yes, can do the projects and grow and be operational and contributing. Right, I've always been fascinated by electrolyzers because the demand for them in particular is massive Mm -hmm. and in the race to combat hydrogen globally these things are excruciatingly expensive so how how do how do people get over that how do governments get over the the sheer cost i mean the labor is difficult to get but the sheer cost of these so the cost curve does need to come down yeah it will with increased demand same as it has with solar panels and, and yeah. wind farms. Yeah, so you you just need more manufacture to get back out to the market. Mm-hmm. It is. It's just. A, I don't think whether it's an overflow from COVID that um, industry still hasn't got to that maximum production. It doesn't matter whether it's engines. Look, all COVID sorts of has things. created some unique supply chain pressures. Yes, mm. there's some. Um, 
and has shown us the benefit of having local supply chains. Yes. Well, South Australia, Richard Turner made it very clear that South Australia has a uncompetitive, uh, comp- unfair advantage compared to others because of its renewables. We may not be feeling it at the moment with mm. electricity pricing, but that's because of wind, solar and no battery storage, right? But as far as battery minerals goes, and we're you, very well placed. Well, and you can only go so far with batteries. Batteries are more short-term. Hydrogen's yeah. more long-term storage. Right. Okay. So, so that's, that's a big difference. Any view on vanadium batteries? Yes. <laughs> and okay. and I see them as a positive. Yeah. If you've got enough land, vanadium batteries do have some benefits over lithium-ion, but they each have their own place. Is there a reason why we wouldn't? develop a more supply chain in the battery mineral space? Like, do we have, I know this is very left field. So critical minerals. Yeah. Critical minerals. Lithium, for example. Yes, that's getting quite a bit of focus as well. It is, because it just seems, I know our labour is expensive, but surely that's such a unique industry that you can actually be the ones that set the benchmark of pricing. Mm. And and that's where it gets interesting. So ICN's role is a facilitator, mm-hmm. not the decision maker on where to invest, but trying to make it easy for businesses to make decisions to invest. So providing information. So is there a number demand. of mines being developed in that space at the moment in South Australia? There's exploration underway. Mm-hmm. It takes time to get from exploration and finding the right minerals to the next step. Yeah, but you'll be there when it's... We'll be there when that happens. Yeah, when that exactly, happens. exactly. And look, when we talk about critical minerals, copper is also yeah. considered by some to be a critical mineral and we're definitely very excited about the Oak Dam discovery. Oh, okay. So tell us a bit, where's Oak Dam? Dam. Ah, so Oak Dam is a discovery near BHP's Olympic Dam site. Mm-hmm. And that will contribute to more copper production in South Australia. Yeah. You can't underestimate. I mean, and the uranium as well. Mm -hmm. So should I ask you about your nuclear power? No, maybe not. (laughs) So my personal view, I come from a country, South Africa, which had a nuclear power station. Mm Mm-hmm. I think as long as the technologies are managed safely and effectively, there's room for everything and we shouldn't say no to something for the wrong reasons. Mm-hmm. We should look at the technologies and look at whether it can be done safely or not. It's it's interesting. There's a lady called Zeon Lights and she was with Greenpeace and she was anti, 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 anti and she's completely backflipped. Zero emissions. So it's hard to compare like people compare to Chernobyl and it's it, Russia. It's like what, what, Come on. what are the unintended consequences? Let's understand what the unintended consequences are and how we can address those. Let's not, there's no such thing as a silver bullet. Mm. Everything you do has consequences. So humans that discovered fire, that has led us to where we are now. Mm-hmm. Wonderful lifestyle, amazing technology. You know, our life expectancy is really good, but it has come with unintended consequences. Mm. So now let's deal with those. So when we talk hydrogen projects and, you know, reinjection or however you want to term it, what's a realistic time frame to say, okay, say South Australia as an example are investing in this? They've got uh, wind, they've got sun. 
they've still got gas and I think and gas is an excellent transition fuel. You have to have gas. It's it's yep. definitely part of the picture. So when does hydrogen come in? Hydrogen will come in end of 2025 as part of the electricity network. And hydrogen is actually in already. So there's a 1.25 megawatt electrolyzer at Tonsley. And that one is supplying residential homes a gas mix of up to 10% in the natural gas network so just, already. Okay, so let's just talk cost. What's the cost of that? Because, I mean, as I understand it, it's quite small. Yeah, so 1.5. at this stage, it's more about demonstration plants. It's a pilot plant. <laughs> they pilot plants, they demonstration plants. They, to get the technology to the point where the cost can be in the right ballpark. It's not yet. But to, that's to play back into your original point. You need mass. You need volume to but get the, the supply cost. and demand, you know, basic economics control. 101. Yeah. You have enough demand, the supply, the but price But are they going to switch it on if it's too expensive? Because if, if it f pushes the price up. It depends on what you're trying to achieve with it. And if you're trying to achieve greater penetration of renewables, if you're trying to achieve um, kickstarting an amazing export investment opportunity. Now, if it's export, that's fine. They can pay for it. But domestically, I think that's always the challenge that I have in my head when they say, who's okay. Who's paying for it? So the question is, who's paying for it? And why would they pay for it? And what would be the drivers to get them to a point where they pay for it. So some types of industry sectors, some types of technologies, it's very hard to electrify everything. Just can't do it. You need hydrogen. If we want to carry on exporting to global markets, we need to, first of all, understand our scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. Yeah. We need to be able to prove them and we need to get them down to net zero. If we can't get them to net zero, we might be locked out of overseas markets. So then that becomes your driver. Well, we've only just heard recently that farmers will be locked out of supermarkets if they don't get down to net zero. But someone's going to pay for those carbon credits and it's going to be you and I going to the supermarket. Mm. So the cost of living is just going to be forced up. But the cost of carbon abatement is cheaper than the cost of climate adaptation. And we're already heading towards a, a world where we do need both. But the less adaptation we need, the cheaper overall it will be. Yeah, I think I might be dead when that happens. So future value of money and, you know, they're yeah. always calculating the intergenerational cost. I think there's ways of calculating it for and ways of calculating against. What I'd like to know is this is a, it's a really interesting conversation about hydrogen, how it plays. Do you think there's a gap in the education system with kids coming through through schooling even universities, we saw it at Apia, there was either people hanging off a bridge, there's the older demographic and there's the youngers, younger ones doing the dance-a-thons. Do you think that there's a, an, a, something missing in the education system that's art, not articulating what you're talking about and getting people to understand the play that's going in at the moment, you know, the energy transition? This... It just seems to be so destructive and the message does not get received, whether it's mainstream media, education, whatever. Yeah, I think 
for each individual, how they look at the world and how they make decisions, their buying power, for example, whether they decide to put solar on their roof, whether they decide to get a battery at home, whether they decide to buy net zero products or not, Mm. are influenced by a range of factors. One of those factors is how they feel about climate change, but other factors are price or what their friends are doing or what their neighbours have been talking about. It's not straightforward. It's not, but, you know, some kids have very jaded views of, of what reality is and it's not even close and they only get that from the education system or and I don't even know that parents would even have time to think in between and doing then, jobs, raising kids. And they know. might be getting it from social media and what you look for you see more of. But I think that's where we've stuffed up because as well from oil and gas and mining perspective, and even renewables, for that factor, we're not on the front foot. We're not. There's no big education of trying to explain to people what energy transition is. To your point, the importance of gas. Mm. Most people think it's dirty they when don't it's not. Understand how important it is. Yeah, yeah. because no one tells them. Mm. Coal, you know, coal's coal will go eventually, but guys. And if you can do carbon capture and storage, that's better than not doing carbon capture and storage. Absolutely. I mean, there's even LNG technology that's come out that basically reduces emissions on an LNG plant. There's all these good technologies, but it's like the, the, no one's saying anything to anybody. Or the message is being oversimplified. Yes, like they're dum-dums and it just, it. I mean, that's whole hence the point of the podcast, but it just doesn't, I don't, I don't really get it. I just don't see why it's a secret. It's not a secret, but where do people get the information from? And Media, what filter are they using? Like we all, we all have filters. We all have filters through which we look at the world. How do you advertise something like the hydrogen supply chain and get South Australia to understand that they could be a part of this exciting new we focus industry? on the suppliers. Yeah. And the suppliers get it. Yeah. Because it's an opportunity for them. Yeah. So does that mean those, I mean, it comes back to diversity of revenue. So they work in defence, they could work in minerals, they could work in wherever new companies coming to South Australia. I'd heard a lot of that in COVID times where they were seeing South Australia as a low-cost base, you know, access to good schools, good universities. And I worked for Normandy Mining and that was the whole thing about being in Adelaide. So will there be a, a huge move upwards to get more people in to fulfil these projects? Will they become There's definitely an investment attraction opportunity here. We do see that, particularly where there will be gaps in the supply, where we identify some gaps in the supply chain. There are those investment opportunities if you can show that the demand is there as well. Yeah. Mm. So they're not just going to be projects run by some large construction company that have to fly people in. We certainly hope not. (laughs) Yeah, I hope not too because I know certain projects have gone that way and it's when, you know, they'd bring, normally they'd bring expats in. So when they shut the borders, they were stuffed. 
and that just meant that there's that was that skill shortage of planners and costies and stuff like that. So hopefully that won't be the case. Mm. And um, that's where ICN comes in. That's our core business to connect them to the local supply chain. Yeah. Okay. So thank you, Bettina. Fenner for coming on to Tough Talk with Jody Rowe. We thoroughly enjoyed it. The hydrogen play is something that fascinates me. And if South Australia's ahead of the game, that's brilliant. So thank you very much for coming. Is there anything you'd like to say to finish off? Thank you so much for having me here. And we look forward to the growth of the hydrogen sector in South Australia. Awesome. Thanks, Bettina. Thanks, Jody. 